And, um, you know, one of my favorite um, things to watch on television is NASCAR. And I know some of you probably think, really, NASCAR? But I, I, love, I, I love watching racing. I love NASCAR because I love the cars, most importantly, but I love, the, I love the action, I love the strategy of NASCAR, I love the racing, I even like the danger, I don't want anyone to get hurt, but you know, it keeps me on the edge of my seat. But the reason why I bring it up is because I think whether you're a fan of racing or not, probably everyone in this room knows that phrase that they say at the beginning of the race. When all the racers are lined up you know, in, in their, uh, their position, they usually get someone who comes out there with the microphone and he says, gentlemen, start your engines. And everybody who's in the race, no matter what position they're in, they think they're going to win. They're full of hope. They have a vision. They have a plan. They have a strategy. Everyone thinks they've got this nailed. And so beginnings are, are there's something about beginnings that, that inspire hope, that inspire a vision. And so no matter if it's the beginning of spring, the beginning of a race, like right now it's the beginning of spring and everything's budding and the trees are, 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 the trees are budding and everything's turning green. We get the fresh rain and it's very exciting and we want to drink our coffee out on the patio. There's something about beginnings, the uh, uh, birth of a child or maybe when uh, you're going to start that family vacation that you've planned for such a long time. At the very beginning, the very first few miles, right? There's no problems. No one has to go to the bathroom. No one's hungry. No one's giving you that, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? There's something special about beginnings, whether it's a birth of a child or a trip. It stirs up hope. It stirs up vision. And there's something that is just special about the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. The word Genesis means beginnings. And the book of Genesis is an amazing book. It's the beginning of many things. It's the beginning of the universe. It's the beginning of life forms. It's the beginning of man, and it's, fortunately, it's the beginning of sin. But probably most important for us, it's the beginning of redemption. Redemption through a nation that God would form and through, through whom all other nations would be blessed, and that nation is Israel. So Genesis is an amazing book. It's the story of God's plan, and it's the story of God's purpose. And so it's an honor to be able to teach it. Genesis, I believe, is one of the greatest books in all the Bible. You find all four planks of our belief. You find the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the triumph. Genesis is also maybe the most God-focused book in all the Bible. The word God is mentioned more times in Genesis than any other book. In fact, in the first chapter, in the first 31 verses, the word God is mentioned 31 times. I took my Bible and I just boxed in every time the word God appeared. And I did it in orange and it just stands out as I look at it. But Genesis is an amazing book. And chapters 1 through 11 are the chapters that I'll be teaching over the next several weeks. And chapters 1 through 11 may be the most read books in all the Bible. And unfortunately, maybe the most misunderstood books in all the Bible. So it's a really good idea. It's a really good practice for all of us to come together and ponder these verses of Genesis. It's a good idea for you individually, at home or wherever it is that you have your time alone with God, to ponder the verses of Genesis for a couple reasons, I think. Number one, it's super important to appreciate the beauty, the simplicity of Genesis. 
Because what I believe happens so much is that when we go to these pages, often we just go there when we want to debate something. So much debate rise out of the book of Genesis. We go there if we want to debate, cre debate creation. We go there when we want to debate marriage, Sabbath. So many other things are there, and it, it's unfortunate that if that's the only time we go to the book of Genesis is to debate and to argue, I think we can miss something very important, something very beautiful about the book of Genesis. And it's kind of likened to you go to a museum to look at a great work of art. Maybe you go to France and you're going to go see the Mona Lisa. And I wonder how many people just go and they look at the Mona Lisa and they just enjoy the beauty of it. They enjoy the brush strokes and the lighting and, and all that. But there are people who go to debate the Mona Lisa. They go there and they look at it and they want to argue about what year it was, it was painted. Was it in 1503 or 1506? And obviously, it was 1503, because I don't associate with anyone who thinks it's 1506. Really? Some people debate it. This is on the internet. You can look it up. They debate, why, is it, why was it painted on wood instead of canvas? Canvas was around, but yet it was painted on wood. People look at it and they go, what's up with the smile? What, what, was she having an affair with Leonardo? Or, or I mean, what's going on with that? And people just tear it apart. And I wonder, don't you just, just look at it and, and just admire the beauty of it? And so I wonder if that's what we do with the book of Genesis sometimes. We, we get so embroiled in debate that maybe we miss the most important thing just to understand it and just to understand the genius of the mind of God. The second reason why I think it's a good practice to ponder these verses in depth is because one, I mean, number two is Christians can misrepresent, we can mislead other people with the word of God. And I mean like this, you don't, listen, if you don't understand the beginning of something, it's hard to understand the middle, how it all fits together, how to understand the end if you don't understand at the beginning. I, I've done that. Have you ever done that yourself where you go, and maybe you watch a miniseries right in the middle of it. You come in, you sit down, and there's this miniseries on or some trilogy of a movie. There's a bunch of them out there. And you start watching from the beginning. And um, you're liking it. It's a really good show. So next week you, start, you watch the next episode and the next episode. But you don't go back and you don't watch the first or the second episode. And later on you're trying to explain, you're trying to fill in blanks to someone else who's done the same thing as you. And you're telling them about this movie, but you never saw the beginning. And then someone else in the room sees you, and they hear you talking, and they're saying, well, look, um, actually, Tom, uh, Yoda is not the son of Darth Vader. It's, okay, that's, it, it's Luke is the, is the son of Darth Vader, and you, you missed it. You can bruise people. You can give them misinformation if you don't understand the beginning. So it's really a great idea that collectively, as a church, we, we, we study these pages of Genesis. Now, maybe the most important thing that I learned in my study of Genesis, or maybe I should say it this way, maybe my most favorite thing that I've learned to consider when understanding the book of Genesis is this, that these words mean what they meant to the people that God wrote them to. Maybe I should say it like this, You've got to remember the audience 
that received these words. So let's start from the beginning and keep that in mind. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's probably the one time where you will not ever have to be told where the page is. You should all be able to find Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. And let's read together. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Let's stop there for a second. Listen, when it comes to teaching Genesis, the question is, isn't where do you begin? The question is, where do you stop? You could do an entire sermon on just an introduction to the book of Genesis. You can do an entire series on just the first 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You could do a sermon on each day of creation. You could do a series on just that phrase, God created us, or created them in our image. There's books written on that phrase alone, created in our image. So the question is, where do you stop? So this isn't going to be a, a, a big, deep, comprehensive study over the book of Genesis. We just don't have the time. But what it is going to be is a study of Genesis from a different perspective, perhaps, than you've ever had before, with a lot of focus on application. Amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we read those words. You see it on the slide up here. In the beginning, when, when was that? Does anybody really know? Now listen, there are four main theories or positions or arguments that people take when it comes to the meaning of in the beginning. And we're not going to get deep into all of those except just to mention them and explain just a little bit about them. But let me tell you this, no matter what position you hold, whatever argument you, you have, every argument comes along with it some problems. There's arguments against what you believe, trust me. When I study the Bible, I, I, I fill myself up with the Word. I, I read the passage over and over. I read commentaries, and I, I read myself full, and then I write myself empty. And I do that over and over and then I pray about it. But in that process, I was overwhelmed by how much information, how much debate, how much argument there is about the book of Genesis. Now, creationism, first of all, teaches that according to Genesis, God made the universe in six 24-hour periods, six 24-hour days. Creationism. And therefore, the earth is very young. And so people with the view of creationism, they declare that science is wrong about an old earth and actually spend or attempt to provide scientific evidence against an old earth. That's creationism. Maybe some of you fall into that category. There's another argument 
That's out there called progressive creationism. And in pro uh, progressive creationism, it teaches that the word days in Genesis are not 24-hour periods of time, but instead they're unspecified periods of time, ages, as you will. And it's in the ages that God created the universe. In example, the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. It's an unspecified amount of time. Even last week, as, we, uh, as Sean um, concluded with Malachi, in chapter 4 and verse 5, it said, the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's an unspecified period of time. But unlike creationism, progressive creationism agrees with the scientific evidence of an old earth. However, they don't agree with evolution. Then there's theistic theistic evolution. This is the third thing. Theistic evolution. This teaches that God created everything. God created time, space, and matter, and he created life. However, after he created life, God took his hand out of creation and just let it evolve on its own. And so you have God who makes the first life molecule, whatever that was, the first protein molecule, and he makes it and he takes his hand out of creation and just lets this molecule evolve into all these different forms of life. So people who believe this, they acknowledge God at the beginning, but again, God is removed from creation and life evolves over billions and billions and billions of years. The fourth one is historical creationism. Now, there's others out there, but these are the main four, and these terms are the, are the terms I'm most comfortable with. Historical creationism affirms the inerrancy of the Bible. It, uh, it upholds the historicity, the, the authenticity of the Bible, which is good. It rejects evolution. Historical creationism believes that Genesis is the historical account of creation, except they have three main differences. And I'm not going to go through the three main differences, only to mention there is a thing called gap theory. And there's a form of gap theory in this thing called historical creation. And in gap theory, it's a theory that says there is a gap between verse 1 of the Bible and verse 2 of the Bible. That verse 1 refers to in the beginning of the beginning, the making of the entire universe, and verse 2 is a remaking of the original cre creation. So that's all I'm going to say about these. You guys should go. You should investigate it for yourself. Come to your own conviction as to what you believe. If you want to talk to me about what I believe, you do that afterwards. There's plenty of books and knowledge out there. But this passage, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me remind you again, one of the most insightful things I learned was this thing that said, these words mean what they meant to the people who say them or the people that God wrote them to. Now, I saw a great example of this in an illustration. And so these words in the beginning to the people God wrote them to just simply meant a long, long time ago. In fact, the phrase in the beginning in the Hebrew refers to way back when. It's not a specific point in time. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's an unspecified, it's a length of time we don't know. And I saw this illustration, and I tried to do it over the last couple weeks, and I did it with about 20 people. And, and I said this, and you could try it. 
I said, I'm going to read you the, verse, the first five verses of the Bible here, and I want you to close your eyes, and in your mind's eye as I read, tell me what you see. And so we did that, and, and I'll tell you what the results were, but you can try it now. Like, let's just do verse one and two. You could close your eyes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now open your eyes. What did you see? God created the heavens and the earth. So when I did it, I saw this. I saw the earth floating in space, and most of the people I did it with, they saw the earth floating in space too. And then I read the next verse. Close your eyes again. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now open your eyes. Most people saw, instead of seeing this blue globe or blue marble, they saw black marble now. Some people, they didn't even see the disc. They saw, well, they didn't see a globe-like thing. They just saw like a disc that was kind of focusing. It It wasn't really focused. It was kind of fuzzy. Couldn't make the the outline out. It was, one person said it was kind of like blob of jello but it was all black. Probably the most amazing thing that I learned from this little experiment was about 30% of the people, maybe even a little bit more, 35% of the people, they didn't see anything at all. In fact, they were incapable of really disconnecting. What they did, instead of seeing anything, they tried to explain to me the universe. Or they tried to tell me what what the passages were that follows. A large percent of them did that. In other words, it was like this. So listen, close your eyes. Let me read the verse again. This is what I did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did you see? Well, Tom, you know the word light is made out of photons. And it's in a bunch of waves, kind of like sound. I go, no, wait, wait, wait. What did you see? Let's do it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Well, you know, Tom, when God said created in his image, and they were just simply unable to disconnect what they know about science or what they know about the Bible. And they couldn't really see anything. And I found it amazing. The question is why? Would the people that these words were written to, would they have seen this? Would they have seen a floating planet in space? No. Because they didn't have pictures of space back then. This is a very modern concept. Maybe they thought the earth was flat. They aren't thinking of the universe and the planets and all this stuff like we do today. Do you think the people, the ancient people that received these words, do you think they would have tried to explain to me what they knew about science or what they knew about the other parts of the Bible? No. To them, their perception of heaven and earth was what the words say. The Hebrew word for heaven is sky. The Hebrew, Hebrew word for, for earth is land. Their perception of it is what's up there and what's down here. That's how they thought of it. And my problem is, is that I get all caught up in scientific explanation and, and, and scientific theories. And, and when we do that, we miss stuff. And in fact, on the part where God says, let there be light, This is what I saw. I saw the sun floating in space, shining 
rays of light on the planet Earth. That's what I saw. Now, I know this is overkill, but I want to really drive home this point. When we do that, we, we can miss the simplicity and the literary form, and like I like to refer to as the genius of God. There was this young man that I did this experiment with, and he's super, super smart, but he's special needs. And I asked him to do it, and after the first two verses, I said, what did you see? He said, I just see black. I don't see anything. I just see dark. I said, well, wait a minute. What about this part? Then God said, let there be light. What do you see? He goes, oh, well, there I saw this beautiful, serene landscape and a sunrise coming up in the sky. And I thought about it. It just blew my mind. Light meant day to him. Darkness meant night to him. Morning. Evening. And God called the light day. And God called. God named the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning one day. The ancient people that these words were written to, their reference to light was daytime. It wasn't these spotlights that are shining on me. It probably wasn't fire. It was morning. It was daytime. So don't assume that the Bible speaks to you in our language. I think it's very important to understand. It's cool. It's awesome to think in their language and in their cultural setting and gain their application that was to them. Now, I know the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and it applies to every people everywhere. I get that. But what I'm saying is, first, before we get in an argument about science and all of these things, can't we just put ourselves where they were and, and try to see with their eyes and hear with their ears what, what, what they got it would be, it's kind of like you go to Mexico on a vacation and you're starving. You get off the plane, you go up to the locals and you go, dude, where's the Taco Bell? I'm starving. <laughs> Look, maybe learn their culture first. Maybe learn what they eat before we start trying to Americanize everything. And isn't that the reason why we have so much debate and arguments and get into it with one another is because we try to fit it into us, to how we think. Like it was written post-1960, that's when these pictures were taken, post-1960. We didn't know what the earth looked like from space till after 1960 when the first satellite went around the world and then the Apollos took pictures from the moon toward earth. That's when we knew that. So it seems to me like the author doesn't care about exactly when in the beginning. Because the story isn't about when, it's about who. Verse 1 reminds us, in the beginning, God. God is the who. God is the subject. And if we just sit here and focus again on these three or four major theories, these isms, this gap theory, everything else, then we can miss out on something so special and something so needed just taking it for what it says. Turn over to Hebrews 11, verse 3. I just want to share one passage with you, and 
It's toward the other end of your Bible. Before the book of James. I love this passage because the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of this very thing. Verse 3 of chapter 11, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He, he's saying the same kind of thing. And we know the other passage says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So no matter what your view, church, no matter what your argument is, grow in your faith. In the beginning, go back to Genesis in the beginning, God. God is the main character. And the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And check out the literary form, the beauty of, of, of this. In the beginning, God. This word Elohim is a plural word. It's plural with singular verbs and singular pronouns. And so this word is a plural word used in a singular way. We, we don't catch that in the English. But when you understand it in the Hebrew, you go, well, wait a minute. So here you find the glorious Trinity, just boom, just there he is. And there's no explanation, there's no definition, there's only an assumption that God always is, always was in his fullness. We, we, we know that the Trinity is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And we see that right here in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, God the Father. In verse 2, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There's God the Spirit. You go, but where's God the Son? In John chapter 1, I'll just read it to you. Verse 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing that came into being has come into being. I, I taught a sermon back in December on these five verses. And it talks about in the beginning of the beginning was God. And Jesus, the Word of God, who is the Word and who is God, was there. So we find at the beginning of the beginning, Jesus was there. God the Son. And that's what we read right here. In the beginning, God, and it says created, the heavens and the earth. Now, this word created is the Hebrew word bara. Now, this word bara is, is an interesting word because this word bara, it implies creation out of nothing. We, we can't do bara. God can do bara. God can create out of nothing. And this word is in the creation account six times in verse 1, verse 21, three times in verse 27. And once in chapter 2, verse 3, the end of the creation account. But this word, to create out of nothing, doesn't always mean to create out of nothing. Because the same word you find in Psalm 51, where David cries out to God and says, God, create in me a pure heart, O God. It's the same word. Did David have a heart? Yeah. But did that heart need to be reformed and reshaped to be a pure heart? Yeah. And so these words, this heaven in the Hebrew sky, 
land or earth, in the Hebrew is land, you put it all together. And the first 10 words of the Bible could have simply read like this to the ancient peoples. So way back when, the triune God who created everything out of nothing created the sky and the land. And it's just beautiful. It's simple. It takes away all argument. But yet we, in our modern thinking, we try to break it down into so many different ways. Verse 2. Hey, we're at verse 2. Yay. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now take your pencil or whatever and just, just underline that phrase, for, uh, formless and void. And if you do that, you can just write right on top of it, waste and emptiness, because that's what it means. The Hebrew phrase for that is tohu vavohu. It means waste and empty. And it's often referred to like the desert. That's what they thought about the desert. It's waste and it's empty. And then it says, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. This word deep, we use it now as a as an image of, of the ocean or the seas, and so it was then. Now, if it's safe to assume that the people who received these words were living in the promised land, to them this would have had a special significance. If it was in the promised land to the east is the Syrian desert, waste and empty. Nothing lives there. You die there. And on the west is the Mediterranean Sea, the deep. You can't live there. And so to them, they're thinking, wow, so this beautiful green strip that we live on used to be like that and used to be like that. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And again, the Hebrew, the word spirit, means three things. It means spirit, it means breath, and it means word. I like that. The Word of God was moving over the surface of the waters because in verse 3 it says, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's word goes forth, and God's word brings order. He brought order to the waste and the emptiness. He brought order to the deep. Maybe that's where it used to look like where we lived. And so it just means different things to the people of that time. God, verse 4, God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, many people get stuck right here in the creation of the light because we say, well, obviously, the sun must have been created first because it says that there was light. But someone else says, no, 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 it's, verse, it's on the fourth day that God said that God created the sun, moon, and the stars. So something isn't right here. Something doesn't jive. Let's debate. Let's argue. And we can think that the creation account is some systematic account in some special particular sequence, and we miss the true structure. We miss the true order and the awe of the author's writing. Since we're not told specifically that the light came from any of the luminaries, maybe the light just came from God himself. We have passages that would argue that. In Psalm 104, it says, The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment and stretches out the heavens like a tent. You see that on your screen? 
In Revelation, verse, chapter 22, verse 5, the Bible says, And there will no longer be any, any night, and they will not have need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. And then in John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So why couldn't there have been light at the beginning? That was from God himself. Look, we don't know. But so what I try to do as I study this, I just try to focus on the application. Because we could spend the rest of the night individually arguing and debating each of these points. So I just tried to focus on the application. It was God's word that went forth. And God's light that came. God's word goes forth and God's light came. The application is that the Bible, this Bible, is God's word that goes forth. And when we read it, it goes forth and it brings light. The light of understanding, the light of truth. But not just for ourselves, but the truth about the world and the truth about God himself. The application is the key. Now what if we just read the next section with only application in mind? I want you to think about this. Just only application in mind. Verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. So again, God's word goes forth. And apparently there was this some kind of vapor, canopy or blanket over the earth, and, and God moves some of the water up, and he moves some of the water down, it says. And it gives the world breathing room. It, it gives the world space to breathe. It gives it air. It gives it sky. It gives it atmosphere, maybe atmospheric pressure, and maybe even weather. And so God can do that in our lives. As God's word comes in, and we are overwhelmed with the pressures of life, and understand our lives are but a vapor. And God can change things. He can separate our lives from the pressures. And God can give us breathing room. And God can give us life-giving air, which is his word. And as you read on through the rest of the days, the accounts, it, you see that God's word went forth every day. And every day God's word was received. And every day it was acted upon. And every day God's word was received. And a change took place. So the application for us is that every day we receive God's word. Every day I apply it to my life. Every day I act on it. And slowly but surely, I apply it to my life. And slowly but surely, I am transformed from something that is dark and empty and void and formless into something that is good. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth 
And the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. So God, God gathers the waters and he causes dry land to appear and therefore the earth and the seas were formed. And for the first time we read here that God looks at what he had made and what he had done and he says that it is good. And you know what? Church, I'm here to tell you something. Creation is still good. And yes, I know that man has exploited the earth. We've ravaged it in many ways. And the earth suffers because of sin. But God's creation is still good. And in fact, God's creation is waiting for us in Jesus' return that we would all be together with him. It's what the Bible teaches. You could just write this down because of time's sake. Romans 8, verse 19 through 22. I'll just paraphrase it. It says, For the creation was subject to frustration by God because of sin. That creation itself will be liberated from its bondage of decay and brought into the freedom and glory just like the children of God. That's us. That the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's amazing. Read that sometime. Romans 8, 19 through 22. Christians, we, we see the world as it is. We see it physically decaying and spiritually infected with sin. That sin has caused all creation to fall from the perfect state in which God created it. The world is in bondage of death and decay so that it cannot fulfill its intended purpose. Why are all these tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes killing all these people? Because the world is in decay because of sin. It's in bondage to death. But one day, all creation will be liberated and transformed, it teaches. And until that day, the world just is out with open arms, waiting for Jesus' return and the resurrection of God's children. And verse 11, just the final thought, is that it says that, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. God also causes plant life to appear on the earth. And he sees that it's good. He causes grass and seed producing herbs and the fruit trees. And you go, well, what about all the other trees? What about the deciduous trees and the coniferous trees? How come they're not mentioned? Because God doesn't need to give us all that information. It's all a setup to the Garden of Eden. Do you think the fruit tree has anything to do with the Garden of Eden? Yes. He does that with the genealogies. You don't have to put all the children, just the ones that lead up to Jesus. Most importantly, though, I want you to see this. God has set reproductive limits on both plants and animals according to their kind. There's no suggestion of any kind of evolution here. In pop culture, in modern society, evolution is a done deal. 
Creationism has totally been disproven, so we don't even teach it in schools anymore. And yet when Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species by Natural Selection, he knew that when he finished this book, there would always be one glaring problem, the fossil record, the fossil evidence. And he believed that maybe one day that evidence would be found that would prove his theory, but that evidence has never been found, and that evidence will never be found. Now, before someone listening online starts sending me mean letters or emails, let me tell you something. Adaptation and evolution are quite different. Adaptation is true. Look around the room. We have different skin colors. We have different heights. We have different weights. Some of us have hair. Some of us don't. But broccoli doesn't become a lemon tree over time. God made things according to their kinds. And so God is preparing the earth during all this time. A habitation for humans and for animals and plants to help provide their food. And God says that his work was good. And this is probably the perfect place to stop. I want to stop on something good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and Father, open up our eyes as we continue to ponder these passages. Help us, Father, to see as the ancient people saw, but Father, help us to also never forget how you move in modern man, how you move in medicines, and how you move in the hearts of your people in the church today. Father, but most of all, help us just to balance it. I've heard of churches splitting over the book of Genesis and it breaks my heart. Father, we, we desire unity. We are all different. And yet, Father, we know that in you we have a complete unity that the world cannot ever have. The world has been blinded in so many ways. Father, help us to take off the blinders of them. Be with us, Lord. Protect us as we go. In Jesus we pray. Amen.